Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. We're going to finish today the book of Amos. Uh, if you haven't been tracking along with us, we've been working our way through this minor prophet who had a whole lot of terrible things to say. I mean, like he's been laying the wood to these people uh, because of their religious hypocrisy and because of the injustice and lack of love for neighbor um, that they consistently exhibited. And Amos has just been beating on the drum and beating them over the head. I mean, it's just been waylaying them. And so um, we get to finish today. And um, if you're a user of the Bible app, I should have said this earlier, if you're a user of the Bible app, you can open and find our live event right now and track along with that. And if you need a Bible, you can put in your lap, some back there on the sides of the tech booth. So um, we finished today where Amos has actually been pointing us the whole time. So like chapter one, bad news, chapter two, bad news, chapter three, bad news, four, five, six, seven, eight, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. The first half of chapter nine, bad news. And this last little section is good news. And I say that um, to remind us that some of us stepped into this moment right here with a whole truckload full of bad news. Your life has been a U-Haul full of bad news. Decisions that you made or decisions that were made for you. Bags that you packed or bags that got packed for you. Either way, it's been a struggle. And the good news for the people of Israel in the 750 BC range and the good news for the people of Heritage Park in sitting in this room and watching online this morning is that your story's not over. It's not. Their story had not finished yet. All along, Amos has been dropping these little bitty hints. I mean, just these small, little, almost, uh, like if you read too fast, if you don't listen well, you'll miss them. He's been dropping these little nuggets about how God is going to bring judgment, yes, but just in the, in, he's, not, he's going to save a little remnant. There'll be a little thing that he holds on to here. All along, he's been tracking, and now he gets to, these, uh, to this set of incredible promises. And I just want to say to you, for everybody who's struggling today, the story's not over. It's not over yet. So Amos chapter 9, verse 11 is where we are. In that day, can we just pause and be grateful that there is a that day? History is not on consistent repeat. Um, it is not on shuffle play. It doesn't have uh, kind of its own mind. It is pointing somewhere. And the place where it is pointing is a that day. That there is a day where God is going to make everything right in the world. I came to preach this morning. I missed last week. Howard had to pinch hit for me. I came to preach this morning. Don't make me do it longer than I'm already behind, okay? There is a day coming, folks. There is a day coming when God will make everything right. And Jesus, excuse me, Amos calls it that day. There is coming that day. Here we go. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. Let's just pause here. I'm going to give you four words to think about as we wrap up Amos. It's all good news. The first word is king. The word is king. Did you see king in verse 11? In that day, I will raise up the booth of who, who where's our king? David. You see him there? David. Um, now, uh, Amos is uh, preaching, prophesying in about, like I said, about 750 BC. Uh, David's been in the ground for a couple of hundred years at this point. So he's not talking about the David slaying Goliath guy. He's talking about someone different than David, uh, but in that kind of line. 
So, so David, we know the story. When you think about David, the, the story that immediately comes to your mind is David and Goliath. Thank you so very much. I appreciate that. The early service, man, they needed coffee or something. They were like, uh, what are you saying up there? David and Goliath, right? And, and so um, we've got that in mind. But that's not all of David's story. I mean, there's, there's David in the wilderness where he's learning to trust God. Uh, there's David uh, who is uh, the ascendant king who's learning to be a leader and to be a governor and to be a ruler and do so with wisdom and justice. Uh, th- there is uh, David, the, the victorious king, who's celebrating all that God has uh, done in Israel during that day. There's David who, um, whose uh, victory led to kind of uh, laziness and lackadaisical approach to life, which led to apathy, which led to David and Bathsheba. We got that David. And then we got the David with all the family dynamics that spin up out of that. David and Absalom and on and on and on. We've got all of that. The David, the better David that's coming, uh, doesn't end up making a hash out of his life. The the better David that's coming is a a David who is faithful, whose life is set to obey. Not just uh, when it's easy, not just when it's good, not just when there's something in it for me, but is set to obey no matter what. The David, the better David that's coming is faithful to do that. The better David that is coming is wise, who can hear the word of the Lord and discern between uh, the word of the Lord and the word of somebody else. He's faithful. The better David is faithful. The better David is wise. The better David is just. He can, uh, he cares about what is right in the world. He's faithful and he's wise and he's just and he's true. What is on the inside of David matches what's on the outside. And what is on the outside of this David, this better David matches what's on the inside. We've done this in here before, but paper mache, you remember, you make it a thing and it kind of takes the form of it. But all you got to do is walk up and put your finger in it and you figure out, oh, this is... There's no substance here. That's not this David. There's a David, a better David, who is faithful and wise and just and true. He loves his Lord and not power and knows the danger of mixing those two up. And he's a David. Listen, this better David who's coming is not going to be one who kills somebody else to cover his own sin, but who lays his life down to cover their sin. That's the David that we're talking about. This is a better David. This is the day that we want to come on the scene. But, but th- this king has, has more than that at play. In that day, I will raise up. Do you see the phrase there? The booth of David. Booth is a weird, it's kind of a funky Hebrew word. Um, did anybody play with G.I. Joes growing up? Any of y'all play with G.I. Joes growing up? Thank you so much. I'm glad I'm not the only one. There was a point where I asked for my birthday, the bivouac from the G.I. Joe collection of that day. And my mom and dad looked at me. I distinctly remember this. Like, why do you want that? It's like two pieces of plastic and a piece of cloth. Because a bivouac is like a lean-to shelter, right? They're like, well, you spending $30 of 1980 whatever money on, on, on two pieces of plastic and a little shelter thing. No, this is not happening. Um, but but this, is, this is the word, that kind of bivouac, that kind of, hey, let's just put some branches leaned up against a tree or against a rock to make sure that the snow or the rain or whatever doesn't fall on us. It doesn't take very much for something to crush that. Yes? Can we agree with that? So this isn't even as much a a tent. It really is kind of a booth, kind of a lean-to, just a shelter. That's all we're talking about here. And so this king, not only a better David, but also he is creating, building a house that stands. Look at the verbs. I will raise up, he says, this booth of David. I will repair its breaches. Raise up its ruins. Rebuild as in the days of old. This is not a booth that folds under the weight of the day, the weight of the circumstances, the winds that blow, the rains that come. This is not a, 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 a booth, a, a place that folds under the weight of reality and the weight of sin. 
this is a tent that becomes a temple. And that temple stands. God creates this with and for this better David, for this king. And it stands generation to generation to generation. And what we know now, reading the New Testament, reading it as the people of Jesus and what he has done for us, what we know now is that God was never going to be about in the business. He was never getting in the business of construction of a building. This right here, this is not the temple that he was going to build. The temple is you and me. We are living stones in this temple. We are the, the, uh, uh, the place where God dwells. And so because of this, because we've got a better David coming, because we've got a house that stands for generations, we can say this, that the king will have his kingdom. I, I just want to note that there is a certainty to that day. And I say that because there are times when our circumstances and our situations and our struggles and our problems and the sin and the shame and all the stuff that goes with it, those things feel like they are the defining thing of history in our world, but they're not. The king will have his kingdom. He is the only one who has the last say over this. He will have his kingdom, the king. There is coming a king. That's good news for you and for me. Um, verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So here's the purpose. This king comes that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by that, my name declares uh, the Lord who does this. Okay, and so that's a confusing little verse or it's possible um, to be confusing. Edom. Edom is in, in um, Amos and some of those 8th century prophets, all the folks who were kind of his contemporaries speaking at the time, they were a symbol of everything that opposed God. And so what he is saying here is that nations are going to come to him and worldly opposition to the kingdom of God will cease. It will come to an end. Now, is that this moment right now? That, that wasn't rhetorical. Is that this moment right now where, where worldly opposition to the kingdom of God has ceased? No. No, it's not. There is coming that day when it will, though. There is coming that day of when it will. This, this symbol of hostility, Edom, here. It is ultimately possessed. It is ultimately conquered so that, and did you see, don't miss the middle part of this, all the nations who are called by my name. God's plan all along was to use his people to reach people who don't know him yet. Okay, so I'm going to back this up and try one more time. God's people all along, I mean like all of this part of the Bible, God's people all, all along, here was his plan, to use God's people to reach people who do not know him yet. And that hadn't, that hadn't changed. That plan has not changed. God wants to conquer, if you will, the nations through the good news that Jesus has died in our place and he has uh, risen again victoriously and he will return one day to make everything right. This is how this happens. There is, there is uh, when we talk about this kind of conquering idea, there is always a submission to the authority of this king. There's only one way that people come to know who Jesus is and what he's done, and that is submission to his authority uh, in their lives. He doesn't care who's trending on social media. Had a funny moment a couple weeks ago. Somebody was walking in my office and they go, they check their phone. And they're like, whoa, Jesus is trending on Twitter. He's fully unconcerned about that. He, he does not care. And hear me, 
in the way that you think he does. He does not care about your feelings. We want God to be our therapist. He's not here to validate. He's here to transform. He is unyielding in his demand to submit your life, to build your life, if you will, upon the rock that we just sing about. He is unyielding in that demand. For those who grew up around the things of God, grew up around church, grew up generations, in that, and for those who are brand new to this thing, don't know anything about this stuff, don't know the songs that we sing. He's unyielding in his demand. And because we all submit, everybody, everybody comes in the same way, submitting to the authority of Jesus. Because we all submit, because we all come in the same way, what we find on the other side of it is equality in God's kingdom. Equality. What do you mean by that? Well, we don't find uniformity. Let's just pause here and say there are different stories in here, different gifts in here, different expressions of service in here, different passions in here, different experiences in here, uh, different uh, uh, things that have shaped you in here. There's all sorts of different stories in here. That is good and right. We don't find uniformity. And we don't find, I couldn't come up with another word, we don't find indistinction. In the kingdom of God, we, we are not indistinct from one another. Like God paints with a colorful brush. He is not a colorblind God. He does these kinds of things on purpose. The sky is blue. The the beauty of a rose is in its red tint. And when it rains around here, grass actually is beautifully green. You look at the ocean depending upon where you are. I mean, it can be like bright turquoise or the deepest blue, or if you're in Galveston, brown, right? I mean, this is... God's not colorblind. He paints with colors on purpose. And so your life and my life, your tone and my tone, Your skin and my skin. Your story and my story. God paints with colors so that the beauty is really on display. Instead, what we find is that we're all unified in Jesus. Not not uniformity, not indistinction, unified. Um, In Acts chapter 15, um, there's a story. It was the the biggest kind of fight in the early church. And uh, it it was the most theological of the fights in the early church. They weren't fighting about carpet or chairs or anything crazy. They were fighting. Here was the question. Do people who are not Jewish, do Gentiles need to become Jews before they become Christians? That was the fight. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, had this really crazy experience. He's up on a roof praying, and he sees this sheet come down with all these different animals, and they're like, rise, kill, and eat. And he's like, no, man, I'm not touching that stuff. And Jesus says to him, don't call common what I have called, or unclean, what I have called clean. And uh, then he launches off into a ministry moment with a Gentile named Cornelius. Actually goes into Cornelius's house, shares the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls on these Gentile people just like he did in Acts chapter 2. So there's a rushing wind and there's um, uh, 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 speaking in tongues and this kind of thing. Like this is the kind of thing that happens to the Gentiles just like he did with, with the Jews. And so um, There's some folks who get wrapped around the axle about that in Acts chapter 15, and they're like, hey, we don't think this is right. I'm not sure this is good. We don't know what to do. Those people aren't like us. Peter stands up, 
And says, brothers, this is uh, the middle of verse 7, Acts chapter 15, verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witnesses to them, excuse me, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, this is the key verse, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's where we are. Like people who come in, nations who come in, people who look different than us, people who act different than us, people who sin differently than us, they come in the same way we do, by giving our lives to Jesus and experiencing the grace that is ours. And then James, the little brother of Jesus, picks up on this down in verse 15. And this, with these words of the prophets, agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild the ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Do you you know what passage James just quoted to settle the deal? It's Amos chapter 9. That's why that story matters here is because the, the gospel invades and it conquers and it creates a new person. Amen and amen to that. But also it creates a new people. And this is what we get to celebrate. There is a king coming and the nations will come to him. There's also an abundance. Look at verse 13. That's the third word. Abundance. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So in that day, in that day, there is coming an abundance. And what, is, what this is, is an undoing of the original curse. And hardship. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve blow it for everybody else. Thank you so much, everybody. And, um, and God says, listen, you're going to have to work now. And by the sweat of your brow, stuff's going to come out. And, and the, the earth will fight you on this. There'll be thorns and thistles instead. This is this curse. But now, but now the, the plowman overtakes the reaper. and the hills, the hills just drip with sweet wine. I mean, I don't know exactly what that looks like. That sounds all right, yeah? Even to you Baptists. Some of you like worried, worried about that. And, Here's what I want you to know. When a good and wise king comes and the whole world is submitted to authority, it just makes sense that the earth is no longer under the curse, begins to do the thing that the earth was created for. In that day, that curse will be undone. Folks, listen to me. If we have our best life right now, we got big trouble in the future. Because cancer is not part of this story that Jesus is telling. War is not part of the story that Jesus is telling. This is not the best life here. Like we're waiting for that day. That's what we're waiting for. I'll just give you one example of this. Anybody know who this guy is? Recognize him? Anybody? George Washington Carver. A couple of you are like, oh, I knew that. No, you didn't. Say something. George Washington Carver. What's George Washington Carver famous for, everybody? The peanut. Thank you so very much. In his own... In his own words, this is how he tells his story about the peanut. In 1920, he was speaking to uh, the YMCA of Blue Ridge, North Carolina. Dr. Willis D. Weatherford, president of Blue Ridge, introduced him as the speaker. 
Dr. Carver exclaimed humorously, I always look forward to introductions as opportunities to learn something about myself. Funny guy. He continued, Years ago, I went into my laboratory and I said, Dear Mr. Creator, please tell me what the universe was made for. George Washington Carver, in case you didn't know, was a man of profound faith. He would walk in the woods and talk to the Lord, and he would go into his lab and he would talk to the Lord. And this is, hey, God, can you tell me what the universe is made for? The great creator answered, this is his words, the great creator answered, creator answered you want to know too much for that little mind of yours. Ask for something more your size, little man. <laughs> we got that new telescope up there? No, man, no, it'll blow your mind, all the things. No, 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 you can't, you can't handle that. It would melt you. You don't want to know. So I said, then I asked, please, Mr. Creator, tell me what man was made for. Let's bring it out of the universe realm. Just get it down to me. Again, the great creator replied, you're still asking too much. Cut down on the extent and improve the intent. A little rhyme there. So then I asked, and you can almost hear the frustration. Then I asked, please, Mr. Creator, will you tell me why the peanut was made? I mean, we've gone from the universe, like, give me galaxies, to, okay, okay, what about me? Just, can you explain me to, uh, how about a peanut? Can you just tell me about a peanut? And the Creator replied, that's better. But even that, it's infinite. What do you want to know? About the peanut. Mr. Creator, can I make milk out of the peanut? What kind of milk do you want? Good Jersey milk or just plain boarding house milk? I want good Jersey milk. Who's not in favor of that, right? And then the great creator taught me to take the peanut apart and put it together again. And out of that process have come forth all these products. That's George Washington Carver's testimony about how God helped him discover this kind of abundance out of the peanut. Who knew? This is the point where the physical and the moral realms align. They, they, they are right and then they come into harmony together. This is the kind of abundance that Jesus is going to bring on that day. Heaven, most of us think about going to heaven, right? But the reality is the way the Bible talks about it is heaven comes to earth. That's how it expresses itself. Um, so I, I just want to give you one more passage. We did this a couple of weeks ago, I think. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I won't spend a lot of time here. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, listen to how uh, Paul describes this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So in the physical and moral realms are rioting in harmony. Like we in this moment right here are to enjoy the things that God blesses us with, reminding ourselves all along, this is just peanut for everything that's coming though. Like this is just a taste of everything that is to be. So we don't want to get this out of whack or out of proportion. We just want to know, oh, this is just a little bitty peanut of all the things that will unfold. Yes, we will enjoy them, but we will remember this is not everything that is. They are, verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. So we want people to experience this. Come on. Come, come, come try this. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may be able to take hold of that which is truly life. I'll just give you two quick mistakes that I think people make. Certainly it's true around here. One of them uh, is represented by this right here. Anybody? Green bananas. Some of you don't like bananas at all. That's fine. We're not judging. 
Anybody like green bananas? I mean, like unripe, ne- y'all like green bananas? We are judging you. Okay. I just want you to know, everybody just look at them and be like, man, what is wrong? Green bananas, the problem with green bananas is they're not ready yet. They're not ripe. They're not ready to eat. This is that problem. We think that, that we must have everything. We must have our best life now. But God is promising a best life on that day. Instead of, as it says here, instead of storing up for the future, we, we think we've got to have it now. That's not it. And the second mistake people make is they live with this scarcity mentality. The scarcity mentality goes like this. I don't want to be generous, ready to share. I, I need to hold on to the things that I have. But what we learn quickly is that Jesus was pretty serious about it. It's better to give than it is to receive. Like by giving, by enjoying and giving and inviting people to the feast and doing these kinds of things, what we find is we're actually creating more room for God to entrust us with any number of things. It is a feast and we want people to enjoy it alongside of us. Last thing, verse 15, Amos chapter 9. I'll plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted. There is a king coming and the nations will be drawn to him. And there is an abundance that will, uh, the earth will yield because it's working right. And I will plant them on their land. They shall never be uprooted out of the land that I've given them. Thus, this is what the Lord um, said. So there is a security, a place to call home, not a house that you build, a land. God turns us into trees, into forests. We become his vineyard. He, we, we are put into the land, so to speak. God has it, the land, and he has us. And he's rooting us somewhere, planting us somewhere, setting us somewhere. And what he promises is we will never be uprooted. That's a promise for that day, not, not this day. A promise for that day. What we come to know is that our security rests on him. The promises depend upon him. The timing of all this is controlled by him. But there is coming a day when we will never be uprooted. Security is ours because of him. The, the only question is, will we be ready for that day? There's no question about if it's going to happen. The question is, will we be ready for that day? The king is coming. That's good news. When he does, he's going to draw all kinds of people to himself. That's good news. When he does, the, the abundance of the earth, the, the curse will be lifted, and the abundance of the earth will begin to yield, and that's good news. And we will find ourselves planted forever and ever and ever, secure in him forever and ever and ever. That is such good news. The question is not if that's going to happen, and the question is not if that's good news. The question is, will we be ready for that day? That's the question. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to surrender your life to him today. Yield your life to his authority today. And if you're here today and you say, man, I am a Christian, but man, I know that there's something. Like I've got this thing and it's stuck right here. I want you to take that and I want you to surrender. I want to invite you to surrender that to Jesus today. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're sick. Maybe there's some relationship. You just need to surrender it to him, whatever it is. Give it to him. There is a king who's coming who will draw people to himself and the earth will full, will, the, the life will be abundant. The life that he invites you to will be abundant. And the life that he gives you will be secure. I'd like to pray for us and then we'll have a brief moment to respond and be dismissed.
Father, now, in Jesus' name, would you um, clear away whatever distractions need to be cleared away here. Help us to be... um, locked in on anything that you may be saying to us in this moment. For some, you spoke to them this past week at camp. For some, you unloaded on them this morning. Help us to be locked into what you say. Your word is life to us. And so you are the sovereign king, the one who's in control. And you are good and you are merciful and you are true and you are just and you are wise and you are faithful. We want to give our lives to that kind of king. So um, I pray, Father, for every person here and for everybody who's watching online, whatever they need to give to you today, let it be. Meet them where they are draw them closer to you as a result of this. This is what I ask in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen.